Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Chris Tucker from the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and founding editor of the podcast. Today on the podcast, we are discussing open shoulder surgery for instability, and specifically an open technique for Hegel repairs. I'm excited to be joined in this discussion by Dr. Bob Arciero, a world-renowned sports medicine surgeon from the University of Connecticut. As everyone in the orthopedic sports medicine community knows, Dr. Arciero has too many accomplishments, accolades, and qualifications to list. So I'm going to simply acknowledge what I consider to be his greatest attribute, and that's his talent as a teacher and mentor. I've personally had the pleasure to work with Dr. Arciero on multiple occasions and share a connection through our West Point roots. And his place in the legacy of legendary shoulder surgeons to pass through West Point is solidified in the hearts of everyone who's been lucky enough to cross paths with him. Dr. Arciero was the senior author on the article titled, The Original Mini Open Technique for Repair of Humeral Avulsion of the Glenohumeral Ligament, which was published in the December 2020 issue of Arthroscopy Techniques, the online companion journal to the Arthroscopy Journal. His co-authors include Nathan Grimm, Andrew Jimenez, Benjamin Levy, and Ryan Bell. Bob, congratulations on your work and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, it was very kind words. And uh, as you mentioned, open uh, shoulder surgery, I, I, I believe, is still here to stay, at least for a while. Uh, so I definitely have some some feelings about uh, when, when we can use it in taking care of people with unstable uh, shoulders. Excellent. So although this is potentially a runaway, open-ended question, could you set the stage for this discussion of an open Hegel repair by discussing your general approach to shoulder instability and where, in general, open surgery plays a role in your practice currently in 2021? Sure. Um, first, I, w- I want to say outright that probably we'll, we're, we're going to talk, talk mostly about traumatic anterior instability, correct? Uh, yes. Or do we want to? Yeah, I mean, I think we should probably hone in on on just that one area. However, so uh, as a, a preliminary comment, about 80% of the surgery that I do in the stabiliz- stabilization of anterior shoulder instability is done arthroscopically. And, uh, you know, where I see that fit in are the indications, um, a primary dislocator in a high risk group. So that would be, you know, your 15, 16-year-old, a 22-year-old primary dislocator, uh, I think is a a perfect indication uh, where bone stock is preserved and you have, uh, in most instances, a capsule labral disruption, which is readily amenable to arthroscopic repair. Now, if someone has recurrent anterior instability, and I I don't know what the magic number is, um, but if it's a male who plays in a collision sport, they've had five or six events, and there's maybe 10% anterior glenoid bone loss, a little bit of bone loss. We see a lot of patients like this um, on track lesions, but they play a collision sport. Uh, I think in this situation, an open bank heart repair still has a role uh, in my practice. Uh, I think this is uh, this is what I would call uh, small intermediate bone loss uh, in a patient at high risk and who's young. So I think that rather than is it arthroscopic bank heart jump to latter I think there's a role for 
open bank heart in that situation. Um, if I have a failure of one of my own arthroscopic cases, if they have, again, intermediate bone loss, and I would say intermediate is under 15%, uh, then I'm going to revise that with an open technique because I can uh, do a double-breasted repair of the capsule labral complex. I can shift and double-breast the capsule, and I can do some things additionally that are different than arthroscopic. And then finally, when you have those patients who do have significant bone loss, then an open uh, coracoid transfer, whether you like a Bristow, I happen to like the Latterjay procedure, that's where that fits in. But I do think that at some point um, in your generation, um, we'll be just simply applying treatment of all pathoanatomy with the scope. So you'll be shuttling in pieces of bone, you may be putting in a piece of bone in the Hillsacks lesion or remplissage, but you'll address everything and not just do a soft tissue repair. We're just, we're just not there yet as a transportable technique for all surgeons who can either shuttle in uh, a piece of iliac crest or allograft or do a Bristow or a Latterjay arthroscopically. We're just not there, uh, you know, technically for everyone to be able to do. But I do think at some point in the future, that's going to happen. And maybe that will make open surgery, um, I'm not going to say obsolete, but less common. But we're we're pretty far from that. But I do think that will happen at some point. Sure. I think that's a nice background in setting the stage for this discussion. We do have a fair number of younger listeners, younger surgeons, um, early in their careers, with respect to the trauma associated with the anterior shoulder dislocation, could you briefly just describe the pathoanatomy involved in that injury and how that correlates with the findings that, as a surgeon, you might expect to see on the patient's physical examination and diagnostic arthroscopy or your initial open shoulder exposure? Sure. So let's, let's just define a young patient as under 25 certainly under 30. Dean Taylor and I arthroscoped 65 or 70 uh, shoulders in a row who had acute instability. They had dislocations. And 97% of those people had a bank heart lesion, and they did not have uh, a significant glenoid fracture or a significant Hillsacks lesion. Now, there were a few that had bony bank heart lesions, but they were small rims. And then we did have some who had a humeral avulsion. And these tended to be uh, folks who at least could describe a really hyper abduction external rotation moment. And I, I think we saw in our group, uh, the highest number were in wrestlers. If you, if you can imagine how they get twisted all around um, mm. when their their arm is in extreme hyperabduction, that's when we seem to see uh, the Hagel lesion, uh, humeral avulsion. And what we also saw, and I think Dean and his colleagues subsequently at West Point looked at trying to classify, they're not all the same. And uh, some of them pull off in the front, some of them pull off anterior inferior, come around the back, and some get the whole hammock. The You know, they get the anterior band, the pouch and the posterior band. So they're not all the same. And, and uh, you know, early on, we didn't know this, 
because we were doing the surgery open and we would we would get in there and say what 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 is this but now we have mri that really that really guides us quite well and what we found is in these patients in the young patients apprehension the two most sensitive tests for anterior instability is obviously the apprehension test and the relocation test for anterior instability those two tests predominate um, the the clinical presentation besides the complaint of instability. Now, interestingly, with Hagel lesions, they don't always complain that the shoulder, at least in my experience, they feel like it's popping out. They just have a sense of uh, that they can't rely on their shoulder. They're apprehensive and they have pain. It's a little more, more of a pain component with the Hagel lesion uh, without a bank heart. And to have a haggle and a bank heart can happen, but usually the bank heart lesion is quite small. It's it's not that big avulsion that you're accustomed to seeing. So apprehension, relocation, uh, the sense of um, can't rely on their shoulder, and anterior inferior pain um, is predominates, uh, especially with the haggle. I think that's an excellent description of your history and physical exam findings. Can you add to that what your current preferred imaging modalities are and what you're looking for to help solidify your diagnosis and potentially your surgical plan? So sure. So I, I mean, obviously, I mean, if a patient has, this, this is going to be a little bit of a muddied answer. If a, if a young patient comes in and they have a, hist- a history of a dislocation, and I even have the luxury of having an x-ray with the shoulder out that they had from an emergency room, and they've had several other events, I actually get a CT scan and not an MRI uh, in that setting. And I recognize that you know, it, there's a small chance I might miss a haggle, um, but I wanna quantify bone uh, bone loss, and I still believe a non-contrast CT with 3D processing is the best way to to do that. Now, there are some people who think that MRIs are can be as good, and and that maybe maybe so. Uh, in my institution, CT scans are more sensitive. So, uh, if I have a a great history and 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 an X-ray with the shoulder out. I'm probably going to get a CT scan in that setting. Um, if they have chronic subluxation, no x-ray of a dislocation, they have apprehension, I still, in a young patient, may go for the CT over the MRI. Obviously, for a haggle, an MRI is exquisitely sensitive, especially if you use contrast. Now, this is going to sound a little different, too, because everybody, when they get an MRI in the shoulder, they like to put contrast in. I actually don't do it except for throwing athletes. When I'm looking at superior labral, anterior, posterior, up above the equator, I'll get contrast. But I usually get an MRI without contrast for a thrower. I mean, uh, in that other setting. Throwers, I use contrast. Frank history of dislocation and physical exam that points to Um, anterior instability as a definite diagnosis, I'll get a CT scan. I don't know if that helps you, but um, 
uh, you know, that's sort of how my brain works on attacking this. Follow-up question to that. Patients often are coming into our clinics with MRIs already. Yep. If you have the young traumatic anterior dislocator comes into the office with x-rays, not dislocated, and an MRI, are you then getting a CT also, or are you estimating your bone loss off the MRI? So honestly, it, it all depends on, this is a bad answer to your question, what the insurance company will allow me to get away with. If I'll request a CT scan, if they decline it, then um, I'll make an assessment on the MRI, and then I will scope that patient and uh, measure it and make a dynamic assessment at, in surgery at, at arthroscopy. So that's how I answer that. But I, hmm. I prefer a CT in these young patients. I'm not worried about their rotator cuff. I'm going to get burned for bone loss if I don't appreciate it. And maybe, and I will scope these patients. Um, and so I can pick up the haggle that I wouldn't get, you know, on a CT scan. Now, you've been doing this quite some time. What has been your experience with regards to the number of times that that CT on a young patient with a initial traumatic dislocation is actually picking up bone loss that's significant in matters? So initial dislocation, I don't get, I don't get it. Because an initial dislocation, those patients don't have bone, bone loss unless they have a fracture. Mm-hmm. So in that young group, they don't, in, in, the, in the kids we saw at West Point, and even since I've been here, I've been here now 20 years, hard, hard to believe, at UConn, but um, primary dislocation, uh, unless they have, you know, an actual glenoid fossa fracture, they don't have bone loss. And John Dickens showed that recently, that um, bone loss really occurs with sub- subsequent events second or third event is when you start to really get some bone loss. So I haven't, in a primary first-time dislocation, I don't usually get a CT. There, that's, that's an MRI. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the recurrent patients. Okay, excellent clarification. Thank you. Okay, so rather than walking us through the entire technique, which is elegantly presented in this article and demonstrated in the associated instructional video, could you instead go beyond the article for us a little bit and highlight the key points to success in your mind, perhaps your pearls for achieving the best outcomes for this open procedure? Okay. Let me, let me, let me, I'm, I'm just going to back up just a half a step and just say, if you have a haggle lesion that extends beyond six o'clock, in my opinion, those cannot be safely repaired arthroscopically. That's what I want to say first. Um, and because you need to be, in order to place anchors on the humeral neck, you have to come almost through the axilla, whether it's posterior inferior or anterior inferior. Um, I think that's dicey. So anything, because I've, I've repaired some haggles arthroscopically, but they tend to be those, just the anterior band, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, to six o'clock. They go beyond that, I immediately go to open. So the the key uh, in, in the open technique is to have 
first of all, is to have always, whenever you do an open stabilization surgery, is to have a bump under the medial border of the scapula so that the scapula retracts the, the fullest amount it can. You want to press the medial border of the scapula right up against the rib cage. And what that does is it flattens the glenoid out so it's not in that 30-degree uh, uh, position and tilted, you know, medially. You want to make mm -hmm. it as parallel as you can to your skin incision, as parallel to the floor. And that's that's critical for any open procedure to get proper access to the scapular neck and deep. So that, that's the first thing. Make sure that you have uh, a bump pressing the medial border of the scapula against the rib, rib cage. So maximum retraction of the scapula. Second thing is I always use chemical relaxation. So if you're, if you're in it, well, he's blocked. I, I, it doesn't matter. It, the, it, there's something about a systemically applied paralyzing agent. It, the, the amount of relaxation is greater than with just a plexus block, in my opinion. I think most people would say that. So those two things are really, really important. Secondly, is when you open the deltopectoral interval, make sure that you you open it in a wide fashion. So you can make a, a, a smaller skin incision that extends from the anterior axillary line. But when you open the delta, you, you need to open it up deeper, or I should say, more proximal and more distal than what your skin incision. So as you go deeper, you have sort of a rhomboid shape, if you understand what I'm saying. If you, mm -hmm. if you open that deltopectoral interval fully, and I like to be able to almost touch the clavicle with my finger, um, and then down to the falciform ligament, that will just open the shoulder up for you when you put in your link or if you have somebody retracting for you, pulling the deltoid in the pec. So those, 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 those three things are very, very important. Positioning the scapula, muscle relaxation, wide deltopectoral uh, interval exposure. And then you're looking right, and then when you take the clavipectoral fascia off, di dissect just lateral to the fleshy fibers of the chondro. You look, if you look, if you take a, a sponge and wipe the clavipectoral fascia, you will see the muscle belly off of the conjoint tendon, um, and you want to dissect the clavipectoral fascia immediately lateral to that. It won't bleed. And then when you put a retractor in, you're looking right at the subscap, and that's 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 the operation right there. You can you can do the L-shaped incision right above the circumflex vessels as as we described. Um, Joe De Beer um, says you all you need to do is separate uh, between mm -hmm. the circumflex and the and the subscap muscle, and you'll be right there. And he might be right. I, I like to give myself a little bit more room. Um, but once you open that, you're looking right into the joint in a haggle lesion. So those are my tips. I think that's the that's the value right there in uh, in this episode. You know, that's that's the value in talking to an expert shoulder surgeon like yourself. Very much appreciate those tips. Um, 
to continue on this theme of the open Hegel repair, as you stated in your article, I think it's sage advice that not all Hegel lesions can be treated with a single technique and the successful shoulder surgeon should be familiar with multiple techniques such as arthroscopic, this mini open, and even a full open. In your experience, what are some of the predictive factors that you look for when you're evaluating these patients that may have helped you decide which approach is going to be successful? So um, the biggest, the biggest one is I have to admit would be looking at your imaging um, and the coronal and the sagittal view. So the sagittal view, the the coronal view, obviously will tell you whether whether the ligament is off the neck to begin with, but the sagittal view you can actually see the cap. You may be able to see the capsular disruption continue more posteriorly. Um, but admittedly, I think the ultimate decision uh, is with arthroscopy. Um, you know, so I'll, I'll start out with a scope uh, hmm. unless I can see, if I can see on the imaging that the whole thing is off, including, you know, stretching to the to the back, you know, like say, for example, on a right shoulder, um, going to the seven o'clock position posteriorly on the glenoid. If you use the glenoid as a clock, if you can see that far, then I'm immediately going to go open. Now I've never had one where it was like a, like a 270 degree haggle where it involved the entire posterior, anterior, inferior. Um, but I would be tempted in that situation to repair the posterior with an arthroscopic technique and the anterior with an open technique, because we do encounter reverse haggles. Um, most of them do not come around to the front. But the thing I'm looking for is if it extends beyond the six o'clock position, uh, and then I'm I'm more prepared to do that open. But I have to admit I scope these first just to be sure of what I'm dealing with, because it's it's so easy to see at that at that point. Now, as a caveat to that approach, we you had mentioned earlier the rare, what, what Brett Owens at West Point would call the floating Hegel, or basically the bank heart tear plus the Hegel lesion. Right. I know it's rare, but if you encounter that, how are you approaching that? Are you fixing it both open or all arthroscopically or a combination? So... I've I've only I've encountered less than five of those in in my career, and uh, where where really you had a bank heart with a complete lateral uh, avulsion. Uh, I, I'm sure it's less than five. It might even be less than three. It's been it's it's been extremely rare, uh, and in in all of those cases, uh, it, one of them I was able to do. Uh, I can remember this. One, I did the bank heart with a scope. I did the haggle with a scope. But I'm pretty sure the other ones, I remember doing the um, the bank heart with a scope and then opening. And I just roll the patient. I do everything lateral for instability. I just roll the patient back to a supine position and opened. Um, but that's an, a very rare injury in in my experience. Have you seen I it? Saw- 
I have not. Brett and I discussed yeah. one case at West Point um, that he had done, and then I was on the lookout for the rest of the year in fellowship and never saw it. Yeah, it's it's pretty unusual. Usually when you have a full-blown haggle, the bank cart lesion, if there's one, is quite small. It's, you know, you see a cleft or it's a little bit of a separation, but it's not this this typical um, complete capsule labral avulsion that you see in the patients who have recurrent, you know, traumatic mm. instability who don't have a haggle and just have the bank heart and, and a stretch of the ligament. It's, it's, it's a different animal. It's quite small in my experience. Sure. Probably fortunate for the patient's that it does happen that infrequently. Yeah, when you think about it mechanically, like how can it fail with a full disruption at both places? It's it's hard to imagine that. I mean, it can happen, but I, I think it's it's pretty rare. I've had the good fortune to work with you both in the operating room and the anatomy lab. And I do have to say, some of the greatest dissections I've seen are your open shoulder approaches. And I admit, when I'm preparing for my cases even today, I refer back to those notes that I've kept from those experiences. Can you try and bring our listeners into the OR with you right now and discuss some of the best habits you've developed over your career when doing open shoulder surgery? Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I told you the one about um, getting retraction of the scapula and complete muscle relaxation. And then the concept of, as you make your when you make your skin incision instead of the the concept should be to widen your deeper approach not to make it a triangle like you have the skin incision and now it's going down to a point like a like like the point of the triangle is the deepest part of the room it should be wider that concept should stick in your head and then i think the other thing is frankly is bleeding so I'm I I I bovie everything. There's always a little feeder vein uh that's that you'll see crossing the deltopectoral interval. It's a little feeder vessel to the cephalic and I preemptively I look for that when I open the deltopectoral interval and I will bovie that preemptively rather than have it start bleeding. So and then and then again when you start to do the clavipectoral fascia always Start the dissection lateral to the fleshy fibers of the conjugate to the uh, uh, I, I believe that's the short head of the biceps. But if you know coming right off the coracoid, you have you'll you'll see uh, some pink fleshy fibers just under the clavipectoral fascia. If you just if you open the clavipectoral fascia right off of the coracoid, you'll get into a ton of bleeding because you'll get into some muscle. So try never to get into muscle. Uh, that's another thing. So I think, you know, dissecting just lateral to the fleshy fibers of the conjoint when you open the clavipectoral fascia is very important. And when I when I have the link in and and now I have the conjoint retracted medially, I want it absolutely bone dry. And I will take every mess, method I can to to have an absolutely dry field, I think that's very, very important to uh, exposure is because you're getting into a deep hole. You know, there's 
you know, like we say, there's lions and tigers around. So you want you want to have an absolutely pristine field, and I think I think that's that's a critical thing. Um, if you get into the circumflex vessels, you need to either bovium, uh, which are difficult, or tie them off. Um, but uh, you know, I try not to get into those if I can. Uh, I'll dissect immediately superior to those vessels, even if I'm doing a uh, taking the subscap off, which I try not to do. Um, but the key is muscle relaxation, proper patient positioning, and then me- meticulously opening and avoiding bleeding or caught don't 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 get behind on that because as you go deeper it'll just be harder and harder for you to see invaluable tips thanks i got just a few rapid fire questions for you before we wrap up do you find do you find that you like an arm positioner or a padded mayo stand for the arm Uh, yeah i never use an arm positioner i love a padded mayo stand that was taught to me by uh, a guy by the name of ed kirby in seattle who did his uh, fellowship with uh, Charlie Near, and I was a I was a senior and chief resident out at Madigan back in the day, and um, putting the patient more in a supine position than a than a up position. Like I never have the patient more than twenty to thirty degrees up. They're all, they're more in a supine beach chair than an upright beach chair, mm-hmm. um, and putting the arm right on the Mayo stand. And then, you know, you position yourself right in the patient's axilla is very, very comfortable and ergonomic, in my opinion. And what are you doing for uh, P. acne's prophylaxis? <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, so my, my partner, I don't do any arthroplasty, but Gus Mazaka and Kevin Shea, they do, they do all the arthroplasty. And... Um, you know they 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 do the um sometimes the peroxide scrub with uh the vancomycin powder as they open the skin i'll have to be mm-hmm. honest with you i don't do any of that and maybe mm-hmm. i should for latergies uh, you know i i have not done it and i i i have to say i haven't i've had a couple infections in my career but definitely less than 5 uh and i've done you know hundreds of these i think again um, managing bleeding so you don't have big hematomas um, and being quick. Uh, you know, I, I, it takes me about 45 minutes to an hour to do a ladder J now. Actually, it's quicker for me to do a ladder J than an open bank heart with a, with a capsular shift takes more time. But I think if you're in there past two hours, that's when you're all of these things your hematoma, your infection rate, all of, all the of things associated with surgery, DVTs and things like that, they start to climb. So, you know, and I, I, I think like I, I was, I, I came up in an era where we weren't fixing with the scope. So we had to do open surgery and, you know, I've benefited from that experience. And I think you guys, the younger guys, I can, I get it. You know, you, you're way more facile with the scope than you are with uh, open technique and and I understand that and that's why remplissage now is is really making headway uh, as an adjunctive procedure and people are getting skilled at shuttling bone in and 
And I do think that's the way of the future at some point. Uh, I just don't think it's it's quite transportable yet. And that's why we, we have people who we still do things only with a scope and why we have some some failures, frankly, because um, soft tissue repair in that manner just doesn't work, um, you know, 100% of the time. And I would say in the, this young active group, it, it probably you're going to look at a five-year failure rate of at least 20%. Yeah, one of my favorite phrases is just having, you know, multiple arrows in your quiver. And I think I yep. think I agree with you that there is going to be a role for open shoulder surgery for quite some time, even if we're trending towards the all arthroscopic management. Like you said, I, I think we're missing some or contributing to some failures if we try and jam everybody into one treatment, you know, yep. option. So, I agree. Um, Dr. Sarah, I, I want to congratulate you again on this work in particular, your contributions to entire field of sports medicine, and in particular, shoulder instability and open shoulder surgery. So thank you again for sharing your time and your thoughts with us today. My pleasure, Chris. And I, I hope my answers were clear and you know, if uh, people have questions, you know, p- please feel free to share my email about anything that I've said tonight. You know, I, I definitely just want to be clear because uh, and, and, there's so much information in this topic, uh, so many aspects of shoulder instability but and the treatment of it. But thank you very much. Absolutely. Dr. Arciero's article titled, the original mini open technique for repair of humeral avulsion of the glenohumeral ligament can be found in the December 2020 issue of Arthroscopy Techniques, which is available online at www.arthroscopytechniques.org. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time.